Glad to be with you this morning. If this is your first time with us, welcome to Two Rivers Church. My name is Jason. It's a privilege to be here with you, open God's word together with you. Let's give the middle schoolers a round of applause as they head out to their class today. Yes, let's go. Middle school, love it. Our high school group is on a weekend trip to Snowy Range up in Laramie, and they've had a weekend. Our middle schoolers just had a weekend. We're grateful uh, for our young people. I'm looking around, young adults, college students. I watched, I'm just so thankful for young people. I hear this a lot, actually, from people that are newer. They're like, man, it just to see young people at Two Rivers worshiping, hungry for the word, it's just People feel inspired by it, and I watched uh, the Jesus Revolution last night. Anybody watch the Jesus Revolution yet? Um, it's, a, it's a good movie. I, I mean, I would say go watch it. Uh, it's a story of an, uh, the, the awakening of Jesus, the, the, oh, what do they call it? The revival, I guess, of the late 60s and 70s in California. It was cool because we watched the movie, and Lindsay was impacted by Greg Laurie, who's a pastor at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. And she told us that she would listen to him preach on the way to high school. And she was impacted by that. But it's a, it's a great movie. I would encourage you to watch it. And it just, honestly, like coming out of it, I, was, I just, I'm so thankful. Like, Lord, you've given us young people to love and care for and teach and bring in. And I'm just, I'm just so thankful uh, for that, and there was a there was something in the movie that I really loved. If you don't know the story, Chuck Smith, late '60s hippie movement. All these hippies started like infiltrating is infiltrating the ch- the church there in uh, Newport Beach, California. But as the movement was beginning, when they would get up and teach, uh, the teacher, uh, whether it be Chuck Smith or a guy named Lonnie. Lonnie Frisbee, was that his name, I think, uh, would hold the Bible up and just say, this is life. And I loved that. And half of the room in the, in the movie was like, it was kind of like the church people, kind of like, you know, the church people, you know what I'm talking about? Like the church people. And he would say like, this is life. And they would just, and the hippies were all on the other side and they would be like, yes, yes, let's dig in. So this is life. <laughs> uh. Anyway, this is a challenging text this morning. If you thought last Sunday's text was challenging and you haven't read ahead into chapter three, get ready. Challenging text, warnings, exhortations, awakening us. And so let me say this before we get there. We don't read and study the Bible to examine it. We read, we study the Bible so that it will examine us. Don't read the Bible to bend it to your will. Read the Bible so that it bends you to the will, the good, gracious, loving, kind will of God for your life. Amen? Humility embraces the good, gracious, correcting, and training for every good work and noble purpose that God has for our lives. And so we can receive it through the lens of God's 
goodness to us to show us the way of freedom. It is life. We're going to do the first nine verses of 2 Timothy chapter 3. I've titled the message, The Future is Now. It begins with this statement, serious statement. Paul writing to Timothy. Paul in Roman prison awaiting his imminent death, passing the baton of ministry to his son in the faith, Timothy, who is pastoring in this wild place called Ephesus. And he is leading the church in Ephesus. And he says, but mark this, or Timothy, be reminded of this. Know this, there will be terrible times in the last days. And he gives a pretty vivid description in these verses of false teachers and the ruin that they are causing within the church. The people that Paul is describing are religious pretenders. In verse 2, it will say people, and the people that he's describing are hypocrites. They're religious pretenders. They are wicked people who are rising up among the community of Jesus. They are, as Jesus said, they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Be aware. Be aware of the terrible times in the last days. Last days. We hear the word last days, and it would be normal for us, or I think even likely for us to go, well, that's probably speaking about the literal last days before Jesus returns in his second advent or his second coming. But as we see this word throughout the entire New Testament, the phrase actually describes the entire time period between the ascension of Christ on the Mount of Olives when he ascended to heaven in Acts chapter 1. The life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ inaugurated the last days. And the last days will continue until Revelation 19 when the Father will tell the Son, it is time. And he comes to make all things new, new heaven and new earth. And so, because Jesus has inaugurated the last days, theologically, it's important for us to understand this. We are living now in the last days. You and I are living in the last days. The future was now for Paul when he's writing this to Timothy in the first century. And it's true for us, we are living in the last days. What does the scriptures tell us about living in the last days? In the Old Testament, in the New Testament, both indicate that the day of the Lord, Revelation 19, the day of the Lord will come quickly. And so Christians must be watchful and ready for the coming of Christ at any moment in the last days. We are living in the last days, and the exhortation in chapter one is there will be terrible times. Maybe some of you feel that, and you grieve that, and you ache that, and you're angry about that, and you have lots of thoughts and lots of emotion about that in the last days that we're living in right now. There will be terrible times in the last days. I'm gonna go to verses two to five. This is what they are. When I say that, I mean this. Paul is going to describe who these wicked religious pretenders are. It is quite, it is quite a list 
of vices. It is quite a list. And so let us humble ourselves to hear what Paul is warning Timothy about. This is who, this is what they are in the last days. Starting in verse 2, people, again, religious pretenders, wicked people, they will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. That was just verse two. There is more. Without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power have nothing to do with them. Woof. Can you imagine the sermon series if we took a Sunday for all the things listed there? That would be something. I'm not going to do that. This is, this is hard to read. And I think we could simply just call this a list of vices or examples of how false teaching leads to real ungodliness in life. The list that Paul speaks about here, there's a couple of other lists that Paul speaks about. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1 is a list. We worked through that list when we began the series back in the fall. Romans chapter 1 is another list. There's a nuance between the list in Romans 1 and the list that Paul's giving in his letters to Timothy. In Romans 1, Paul is speaking about a pagan Gentile people. Here, Paul is speaking about people in the church, religious pretenders in the church. And I, I read through this list, and I, Lord, awaken me, awaken us to how we are coming under any lies that would lend itself to any of this. And I read the list and I go, this is what happens when moral indifference runs wild. We spoke about Gnosticism, the heretical teaching in the first, second, and third century that lent itself, that material matter was evil, and that the only thing good was our spirits, and it lent itself to a real moral indifference in people's lives. That's what Paul is battling against here. And Timothy, this is what happens when moral indifference runs wild, blinded by pride, stopping at nothing to have sensual desires satisfied. Given a choice, these people would always please themselves rather than God. And even if there was an outward, some kind of outward form, some kind of outward appearance of godliness, they would choose themselves. I was driving on Wednesday with Savannah, my 16-year-old, and I was taking her dad taxi to her dance studio, and we were listening to country music because that's what you listen to when you're in my truck. You listen to country music. And so we're listening to country music, and it was one of those things 
that a country radio station or any radio station might do when someone has some type of moral dilemma and they don't know what to do, and for some reason they decide, I should let all of the radio listeners tell me what I should do with my moral dilemma. Do you know those kind of things? And they, they call the DJ or whatever, and they tell them the dilemma, and then the DJ throws it out to Radioland, and then people call in and tell them what they think this person should do. You guys know what I'm talking about right now? Okay, so that's what we're listening to, and here's the dilemma. A female who was engaged to be married in about a year was being encouraged by her friends to have one last fling before the wedding ceremony. And everything in me in that moment just wanted to change the station. But I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna listen to this with my 16-year-old. And so, hey, here it is. Their friends are like, either, you know, an ex-boyfriend or someone just like, just, this is what she's been, encur- she's being encouraged to do this by her friends And she's in this moral dilemma. And so she's going to get wisdom from the radio people. (laughs) And so the first three callers call in. And guess what they encouraged? First caller, two words, simple, do it. Yeah, that's what I, just do it. Second caller, get it out of your system now. Third caller, well, you're not technically married yet. So it's not technically cheating. And then I changed the station (laughs) because I couldn't stomach anymore. And I looked at Savannah and I said, sweetie, this this is the world's message to you. Do you think this is terrible advice? And she said, yes, dad. And I went, Here's what I think the advice sounds like. Without love, without self-control, abusive, unholy, rash, lovers of pleasure. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. In the last days, there will be terrible times and terrible ungodly advice. It's everywhere. And we read this and we go, man, man, first century Ephesus was pretty messed up. And I would invite us to go, don't just read it and only think that first century Ephesus was pretty messed up. Because this list, verses two to five, can show up at any time period in any culture where people are lovers of themselves first. Everything in the list that we read flows from that initial phrase in verse two, people will be lovers of themselves. I want you to notice how it's bookended in verse four as well. It starts with lovers of themselves. And then in verse four, it's bookended with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God and all the stuff in between. Now, I wanna make a note here for you. Paul is not speaking about self-care Paul's not speaking about owning your own self-care in your life. What he's speaking about is putting yourself above everything else. And when love 
is misdirected to loving only my way, my wants, my needs, we become blind. And self-love can blind us to things like materialism and self-centeredness can produce in us people who are boastful, proud, ungrateful, and the list went on. Question for us this morning, if we can step into humility to receive this word for us, what is your center and your decision-making in your life? Living life means that you and I, every day, all day, we have lots of decisions to make. Would you agree with that statement? Like living life is making decisions about lots of things. And so in that, what is your center? What is your center of moral gravity? Is it, is it God or is it you? Because when the center of character and moral decision-making shifts From God, his freedom, his way, his goodness, his grace, his purpose, his noble purposes for us, when it shifts from God to me, all kinds of ruin will come out. I want to remind you of two things, strong exhortation that Paul spoke about last week in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul says, everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness and flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And I want us to be clear on this. These are strong, godly, good, right, merciful, gracious exhortations. This is not, this is not a strong arm of moralism. They are exhortations of grace and mercy for freedom's sake in the hope, in the hope that the kindness of God would lead people, grant people repentance, leading them to a knowledge of truth. This is to lead people to truth. It's to lead people away from lies and to truth. Jesus said it this way, John 8, they will know the truth and the truth will set them free. This is for freedom's sake where the spirit of the Lord is. There is Freedom, this is good for us if we're humble to receive it. I want to, again, we don't have the time and I'm not gonna do a whole series on this list, but I wanted to speak to you about one thing on this list. When we, when we, when our center is ourselves, one of the things that Paul mentioned that comes out, that manifests itself is unforgiveness. And I wanted to speak about that with you for a few moments. It's in verse three. Again, Paul is describing religious pretenders, how their love of self is manifesting. The love of self lends itself to be unforgiving of others. The love of Jesus lends itself of forgiving others. On the the cross of Calvary, Jesus said these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Where unforgiveness resonates, resides, festers, grows, 
where unforgiveness is present, resentment and bitterness grows. Would you agree with that? Perhaps you've seen it. Perhaps you've experienced it in your life. But where forgiveness is present, there is healing, there is shalom, there is deliverance, there is breakthrough in our lives. Perhaps you've seen it, perhaps you've experienced. I think this is really, really, really important for us to consider. When we think about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is near. When we think about the gospel, the life of Jesus and the work of Jesus, at the very center of the gospel message is this. Jesus died on the cross in your place so that your sins would be atoned for, and then he rose from the grave, giving you a certain hope of eternal life. That's at the very center of our message, of our hope, of our peace, of our deliverance. Jesus died in our place, Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that phrase, for us, is really important theologically. For us, in our place, our substitute. His death paid the wage of sin, Romans 6, 23, that we owed. And the wage of sin that he paid, he paid it with his own blood, hallelujah. So that we could be forgiven and set free, 1 John 4, 10. This is love, this is love. Not that you have loved God, not that I have loved God, not that we have loved God. This is love, that God has loved us and has given himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The theological term around forgiveness is substitutionary atonement. Forgiveness of sin is by substitutionary atonement and thereby reconciliation with God. Hebrews 9.22 makes this statement. The law requires the holy, right, good, holy justice of God requires Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so in order for the love of God and for the justice of God to be satisfied, a blood atonement was necessary. And Jesus gave himself as our substitutionary atonement. Hallelujah. It's why that... That truth is why when we sing this song, like every time we sing this song, I literally feel like the, the, the place is about to explode. All the earth will shout your praise. Our hearts will cry. These bones will sing, great are you, Lord. Do You know that song I'm talking about? And when we sing that in this house, I don't, I don't know, but like that one song, for some, there's something in that song for this people in this time. We just worship. And we're worshiping the truth of substitutionary atonement. Great are you, Lord. Great is your mercy. Great is your grace. Great is your salvation. Jesus alludes to substitutionary atonement in the Last Supper when he tells the disciples this this phrase, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
After the resurrection, the apostles carried the message of forgiveness, the message of substitutionary atonement for forgiveness. Throughout the world, Paul says these words, Acts 13, 38, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You are free. And so, where there is a rootedness of unforgiveness, where there is a place of unforgiveness, the gospel is not having its power fully to set people free. We are, we are resisting the reality of the freedom of Christ when there is unforgiveness rooted in us. It's what Paul says having a form of godliness but denying its power. Maybe God isn't totally denied. Perhaps there's some outward forms of some kind, but there's no evidence of the gospel's regenerating, transforming force because there is no forgiveness for yourself and for others. And so here is Timothy's call. The call to Timothy, where there is much evidence of loving self, of unforgiveness and all the other things listed, he makes this strong statement to Timothy. Verse five, have nothing to do with them. And I'm reading this and I'm studying this and I'm thinking, well, last chapter, Paul, you told Timothy to be kind to everyone, to teach everyone gently. Are y'all with me right now? In hopes that they would come to repentance, right? Like he said that. And now the next chapter, he's saying, and this is who they are. There's terrible times. This is who they are. This is what they do. Have nothing to do with them. So what do we do? What do we do with this? And my invitation for you to consider in this is we operate in discernment in our lives with these exhortations. I shared a, a proverb with you last week, Proverbs 26, 4. And it was in reference to Timothy's, uh, Paul's exhortation to Timothy to not get caught up in like foolish and stupid arguments that lend itself to quarreling on quarreling. And so we were speaking about that and I used a proverb and I wanna show you today what the very next proverb says because I only showed you verse four last week, but here is verse four and five of Proverbs 26. Proverbs 26, four. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, Next verse, answer a fool according to his folly or he will be wise in his own eyes. What's the difference here? Discernment. What's the difference in gentle instruction and having nothing to do with them? Discernment. Discernment to separate from their teaching and their deception. Discernment to protect others from their teaching and their deception. Because their aims and their ideals and their moral indifference are not to be shared, have nothing to do with them, but as persons, they are to be one, if at all possible. And so we hold both exhortations at the same time. The Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, gently instruct in the hope that God will grant repentance and have nothing to do with their lies, with their deception, with the harm that they're doing. Discernment. Lord, give us discernment in these 
matters. Next three verses, um, the last days, what they are, now it's speaking about some real harm that's happening. What they do, what religious pretenders do, they, they harm people. Let's read these next verses. Six to nine, Second Timothy chapter three. They are the kind who warm, worm their way, not warm, worm, worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. It just means vulnerable women. This is not an indictment on women. This is a statement of harm that's happening in the church because men aren't stepping up to protect women. And I'm a dad of four daughters, and I feel this. And I'm a husband, and I'm a brother to many sisters, and I'm a pastor. And there is harm being done in this church by pretenders. They warm their, worm their way into homes and they gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, I'll t- explain to, who, to you who that is in a second, they oppose Moses So also these men oppose the truth. They are men of depraved minds who as far as faith is concerned are rejected. But they will not get very far because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to every one. Janus and Jambres, this is the only place in the scripture that we see those two names mentioned They are two of Pharaoh's magicians. They are wicked, dark magic men. They are serving under Pharaoh in the time of Moses. They're not in scripture, but we find their names, we find references to them in both Jewish and pagan literature. So if you want the scene, two of Pharaoh's magicians or magicians were trying to demonstrate that they could try to work miracles like Moses was working. If you want to cross-reference this, it's Exodus chapter 7. You can read that. And it's also in chapter 9 of Exodus. So Paul is speaking about this kind of wickedness, this kind of dark magic stuff that's happening, and it's harming people in the church. And he has specific experience in his own ministry with stuff like this. Acts chapter 13, you don't need to turn there. Elimus, the sorcerer, was opposing Paul and he was trying to turn people from the faith. In verse nine, Acts chapter 13, verse nine, it says, Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimus and said, you are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. It was dark, wicked stuff in Acts chapter 13 on the island of Cyprus, and it was dark, wicked stuff in Ephesus where Timothy is serving, and there is dark, wicked stuff happening in our day right now. Their insidious ways 
were effective in confusing and swaying vulnerable women who were not under protection of the deception and the temptation. And I find it interesting that of all of the list of everything that's mentioned between verses two and verses five, now we get to verse six, it includes women who are under, under deception and under the control of wicked men. And it's part of the list. And I believe that Paul, in this context, the terms are suggesting that the false teachers had gained complete psychological dominance over vulnerable women. And it says the men had depraved minds. And so Timothy's call and the church's call was to fight for the freedom and the healing of people who were being harmed. And it's the same, the same is true for us today. Fight for people, innocent people who are being taken advantage of and harmed and confused and deceived and taken advantage of and being abused. Protect them, fight for them. They were held captive by deception and not able, not able to acknowledge the truth that sets them free. And so Paul says to Timothy, reach them, find them, rescue them, teach them, empower them like I do. Why, why, why do I say that? Because when you read Romans chapter 16, there's this long list of women that Paul is so utterly thankful for. And he calls them fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And he names them Phoebe, Mary, Junius, Priscilla, and the list goes on. Fight for them. They're being harmed in your house that you are leading. And it's all in our minds. It's in our minds. Spiritual warfare is in our minds. What we think is who we are. What we believe is what determines how we live. This is a, a really important concept for us to understand. Because when you, when you make an agreement in your mind to something that is not true, you come under the deception of that lie. Are y'all with me right now? It's not true, but when you make an agreement with something that's not true, you come under that deception. And what happens is the enemy gets a foothold in your life. And it's really important and really serious, and we need to be aware of it. What's a foothold? Here's some examples. Toxic guilt that we just can't shake. The insidious lie of shame. You should be ashamed. You, it, you, what you do is now connected to your identity and you spend your life in self-abasement for that thing that you did or whatever. Toxic guilt, toxic shame, toxic and broken relationships. Moral indifference that leads to huge consequences that brings hurt and harm not only into your own life but into the lives of people that you love and care about. A resistance, here's a foothold, a resistance to Godly discipline. God disciplines his children because he loves them and he wants good for them and he wants them to be free from stronghold. 
or a resistance to taking personal responsibility. These are all examples of a foothold. Now, let me say this. The enemy has no authority to take ground in your life. If you are a believer, if you stand in Jesus, I confess with my mouth, I believe in my heart, I stand under the blood of Jesus, you are saved and you have the anointing. You fight from a place of victory. Hear that. The enemy cannot take ground in your life. He who that is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Are you with me right now? But what we can do and what we tend to do when we don't operate in the truth is the enemy will tempt us with a lie. And we believe a lie. And when we make an agreement with a lie, we give the enemy a foothold in our life. We have the authority, but we're giving the authority to the enemy because we're making agreement with a lie. And in breaking free from deception, all we need, all we need is the truth of God's word spoken over the lie to sever it. And it sounds so simple, but the scriptures tell us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that God's word is not chained, that it's living and active. This is life. And so when we know the word and we speak the word over a lie, the lie has no ground. The foothold is gone. Second Peter 5, the enemy prowls around like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith. Peter just said, just resist it. It's lies. Resist it. Stand firm in the faith. Speak the truth of God over it. Severed in the name of Jesus. Done has no authority to stay. It's why, it's why it's so important regarding spiritual warfare to be men and women of the word. And there is not an iota in me pastorally that wants to shove this down anyone's throat. Hear me, trust me, not one ounce in me. That's not... That's not gonna do anything but cause you to go the other way. But if we believe that this is life and an invitation to freedom, to study this word and to know the truth, when the lies of the enemy come, we stand firm because we know what's true. Are y'all with me right now? And then we speak the truth of the word of God over the lie. And it has no power in our lives, this is why Jesus says you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. Here's a lie. I'll just speak with you about pastoral counseling situations and personal in my own life. Here's a lie. Oh, man. That's bad. Fellowship with God, your fellowship with God is broken. And so you need to Repent, and you need to get back to God. Emphasis on you, repenting. Emphasis on God being away from you. Emphasis on you getting back to God. Lie. Why? Romans 8. Nothing in all of creation will be able to separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Lie. God has abandoned you. You've simply gone too far this time and his grace has run out in your story. 
lie? Jesus said this in John 10, nothing, no one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. My sheep know my voice, they follow me, and nothing will be able to snatch. What, what has more power, your sin or the authority of Jesus, the Lord of glory? Lie, your sin is unforgivable. John 6 where sin has increased, grace has increased all the more. Lie, this is impossible. Your situation is impossible. Lie, truth of God, with God all things are possible. This word is living and active, and it is useful to bring us to freedom. It is good and gracious and kind. Walk in freedom. Be men and women of the word so that we can speak against the lies by the authority that God has given us. And I know from my own story, um, I, need, I need the word and I need my wife and I need my brothers and I need my sisters and I need God's family. Because sometimes in my life, my feelings about my shame and my feelings about my guilt and my feelings about my circumstances overwhelm me. And everything in me is trying to speak the truths over myself. But if I'm honest, the lies are winning the day. Maybe they're winning the week. Maybe they're winning the season. And I need my people to speak the lies over it with me. Are y'all with me right now? Like we need each other in this journey of freedom. And we can encourage and empower one another with the truth of God's word. When I'm praying for someone that is stuck, living under lies, living in bondage to whatever it is, when I pray for them, I am literally like, Lord, give me, give me the scriptures. Like I just, like when I go to put my hand on a shoulder, I'm praying for someone in my office, I'm like, I'm literally like, Lord, just, just give me the scripture. Give me the scripture. I don't wanna speak my words. My words carry no power. This is life and power. When we, Lindsay and I, were walking through many years of heartache with her brother's addiction, I've shared this story, I think, before with you. She would wake up in the middle of the night very afraid because we didn't know where he was. And I'll never forget this. And she would just like, just, just speak scripture. I was like, what scripture? Whatever comes to your mind. I'm just, I'm feeling overwhelmed by dark. Just literally whatever scripture comes to your mind, just say it out loud. And we would do that. It's the truth of God that sets us free. This is life. I wanna read some life over you to empower you in your life. A worship team, you can come back up. We'll worship out of this. You don't need to turn here, but I wanna read some truth to you over over you from 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I wanna invite you to stand as I do this. And I wanna invite you to grab 
uh, one of those communion elements uh, out of the pew rack in front of you. If you're on the front row, ask your friend behind you if they can hand you one of those communion elements. Because if there is, if there is one, one way to slay the lies of the enemy in your life, in your soul, in your circumstance, I believe it is coming to the Lord's table, aligning your mind and heart and life with who Jesus is and what he has done for you. And that's what happens when we come to the Lord's table. We are aligning our life with Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his gospel that liberates us. And so I'm gonna read this passage and then we're gonna take communion together because we're gonna align our minds in the gospel and then we're gonna worship together Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses three to five. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, the weapons that we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments, lies, and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, against the truth of God. And we take captive every thought and we make it obey Jesus. We take every thought and we make it obey Jesus. When you take communion, you are taking your life, your thoughts, your circumstances, the shame that you're battling, the fear that you're battling, you are taking it and you are saying, you must bow a knee to the living God under the authority of Jesus, his bloodshed, his resurrection. There is power happening in the spirit when you come to the communion table because you are aligning your mind and your heart with the truth of the gospel that sets you free and reminds you, you are totally forgiven. It's not just a thing that, we're, that we do in church. This is warfare. Coming to the table is warfare. And it is a proclamation to people that God is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask think or imagine. And I have a hope that is real, and I want to tell you about that hope. It positions you as a witness. You're proclaiming the Lord's death and in his second coming, and it is for healing. And so I pray that as we take communion together, that we'll remind you of what is fully yours. And I do not have an element. Becky, are there any elements right in front of you? Thank you, JJ. Let's take off that first little thing, this little, this little wafer that tastes really dry is a symbol. It is a symbol. Jesus said it this way, this is my body that's been broken for you. Take and eat. Let us eat together.
And on the night he was betrayed, he took the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant that is poured out for the forgiveness of the sins of many. Take and drink and receive the anointing. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. You are forgiven. Let us Praise be to God. Lord, thank you for space to be refreshed, to encounter your gospel, your freedom, to be reminded of our forgiveness. Awaken us, Lord, to lies in our lives that we need to be free from. Lord, convict us, convince us of the truth of your word that sets us free. So I just pray, Lord, freedom, freedom over your people today and an empowerment of grace that liberates us from anything that holds us back from the fullness of the freedom that you have for us, our noble purpose in our life. I pray healing over toxic shame, over toxic guilt, over broken relationship. I pray healing over a resistance to discipline. I pray healing, Lord, in our lives. And that we will step into the fullness of your grace in a fresh way today. In Jesus' name, amen.